Most of us are familiar with uh, the more infamous criminals, people like John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, but have you ever heard of the criminal named Francis Two-Gun Crowley? Well, on May the 7th, 1931, the most sensational manhunt New York City had ever known came to a climax. After two weeks of searching for a killer known as Two-Gun Crowley, they finally had him trapped in his girlfriend's apartment. 150 policemen surrounded the building, making sure there was no, ma- no means to escape. They cut holes in the roof, and they tried to smoke him out using tear gas. When that didn't work, they mounted machine guns on the surrounding buildings, and they showered the apartment with bullets. The machine gun volley lasted for over an hour. They would fire for 10 to 15 minutes, and then they would wait. And then if Two-Gun Crowley used his pistol and shot back, they knew that he was still alive and he was refusing to surrender, so they would blast away for two or three minutes. Sometimes it would go as long again as 10 to 15 minutes, and then they would wait for a response. And this went on for over an hour. When when Crowley finally gave up and he surrendered, the police commissioner declared that Two-Gun Crowley was the most vicious, most ruthless killer New York City had ever known. He will kill at the drop of a hat, the commissioner told reporters. He's an animal. But that's not how Francis Crawley saw himself. In fact, while he was holed up in his girlfriend's apartment surrounded by police, he actually wrote a letter. He was wounded and he was crouching behind a too large or an overstuffed chair, and he addressed this letter to whom it may concern. In the letter it said, under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would never do anyone any harm. He truly saw himself as an innocent victim. But people, that wasn't the case. In fact, two weeks before he was captured, he was in a car making out with his girlfriend. And of course, the manhunt wasn't on. It was this incident that sparked the manhunt. But while he was making out with his girlfriend in the car, a policeman walks up to him and he asks for his license. Well, Two-Gun Crowley whips out his gun and he empties the gun into the police officer. And though he's dead, he gets out of the car, he takes the gun out of the policeman's holster, and he empties that gun into the policeman. After he was captured, Crowley was sentenced to die for multiple murders. Right before being executed, he was asked if he had any last words. And this is what he said. This is what I get for defending myself. Even though he killed numerous people for little or no reason, Two-Gun Crowley didn't see it that way. He truly saw himself as an innocent victim. Now, what's sad is most criminals think that way. It doesn't matter what they've done. It's not their fault. It's always someone else's fault. Listen to what Al Capone said shortly before he died. He said this, I've spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time. And all I ever got for it was abuse and the existence of a hunted man. Now, in Al Capone's mind... He was an innocent man. Now, I want to drive this point home, so if you don't mind, I'm going to quote one more person. This is Lewis Laws, who was the warden of New York's infamous Sing Sing prison. He said this, Very few criminals think of themselves as bad people. They rationalize what they've done, maintaining that they never should have been imprisoned. They can justify why they stole, why they murdered, why they violated other people's rights, and it's never their fault entirely. Someone else is always partially to blame. And I'll be honest, as a pastor, 
I found that to be true. But it's not just criminals that think this way. Believe it or not, we all tend to think this way. It's never our fault, at least not entirely our fault. Someone else is always partially to blame. In fact, it's human nature to think that way. I promise you, it's, that. it's human nature. It's human nature to avoid taking full responsibility for our actions. It's human nature to try and get someone else to share the blame. And people, it all started with Adam. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. Let's notice what Adam did after he fell. It says, The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the men and the wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate. Now, I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse 12, Adam was passing the blame just as fast as he could. He had absolutely no intention of taking the blame all by himself for what he had just done. Uh Uh-uh. Part of it was Eve's fault. Part of it was God's fault. Look at verse 12 and notice how Adam responded. It was the woman you gave me. In other words, Adam was saying, hey, I might have done something I shouldn't have, but we're all at fault here. Eve's partially at fault because she's the one that gave me the fruit. God, you're partially at fault because you're the one that made Eve. And of course, I am partially at fault because I did take the fruit from the woman that you made. But God, can you see I'm not entirely at fault? Now, let's be honest. That's a bunch of bullcrap. Would you agree? It is. Eve did not force Adam to eat it. She simply ate it and said, hmm, you got to try this. And she handed it to him. And God clearly warned both of them not to eat of the fruit of that particular tree. God could not have been any more clear. But the problem was, Adam didn't want to take full responsibility for his own actions. So he began placing blame on others to justify his behavior. And ever since that incident, it's been human nature to do that. It's human nature to avoid taking full responsibility for our actions. It's human nature to try to get someone else to share in the blame. So when we screw up, what do we do? We look around. Who could have made us do this so we can place blame on them? We want to make sure that they're partially responsible for what we've done. But people, that doesn't fly with God. God doesn't buy the blame game for a second. So let me give you a principle, and if you're taking a principle, I want you to write, or you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here it is. God expects every one of us to take full responsibility for our actions. And I'm going to give you a formula to prove that. I'm not going to walk over here. It's too far. I'm going to be referring to it all the time. So if you don't mind, let's move this over here. And I want everyone, not just the ones who are taking notes, to write this down. All right? This is something every new Christian should know. 
I'm going to prove to you that God expects every one of us to take full responsibility for our actions, and I'm going to use a formula to prove that. The formula that I want you to write down is this. E plus R equals O. Pretty simple, isn't it? Well, what do those symbols stand for? Well, E stands for the events that occur in our life. We always have different events that take place in our life. R is for the way we respond, so I'm going to put E out here. R is for the way we respond to those events. And then O is for the outcome. Pretty simple little formula there. Would you agree? Now, what this formula states is that it doesn't matter what occurs in your life, your response determines the outcome. Now, let me give you a few examples to illustrate what I'm talking about and to show you how this formula works. Let's start with something very, very simple. Let's suppose that someone hurts you. Someone stabs you in the back and they betray you. That's an event in your life. So that would be an E, all right? Someone has stabbed you in the back. Well, because they stabbed you in the back, you get angry and you refuse to forgive. Now, what happens to anger if it's not resolved? Well, it turns into bitterness, that's what always happens. And that bitterness is going to cause you to hate that person. And it's going to want you to desire to seek revenge. Because you're going to want to hurt them just like they hurt you. So the outcome of that event is that you become a very angry, bitter person. With hate in your heart seeking revenge. Now I want you to understand something. The outcome was not determined by the event, even though we'd like to say it is. The outcome was determined by the response to the event. We need to understand that. Now, let's still look at this example, but let's look at it on the other hand. On the other hand, if you choose to forgive that person, and you decide to obey God's word, you start praying that that person is going to be blessed. You start casting down all those vain imaginations you're having about that person. You know what I'm talking about. Those vain imaginations about just punching them in the face or getting them down on the ground and just pounding their head against the concrete. And then you refuse to let bitterness take root in your heart. Let me tell you what the outcome's going to be. Even though they betrayed you and stabbed you in the back, if you respond the way that God wants you to, the outcome is going to be totally different. Instead of being this angry, bitter person who has hate in their heart, you're going to be a person who's free of bitterness and anger, and you're going to be a person who's at peace with themselves and at peace with others. And people, that's the outcome. It doesn't matter what event occurs in your life. The way you respond to it determines the outcome. It's not the event that determines the outcome. It's not just what happens that determines the outcome. It's the way you respond to the event that determines the outcome. And this formula works for any event that occurs in your life. And let me just stress that, any event. In fact, let me use the most extreme event that I can to prove to you that this applies to everything. Let me use death. Death is an event that's going to occur for every one of us unless Jesus Christ returns before then. So if we looked at this event and said, this is death, I want you to understand the way we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ determines our outcome at death. If we respond in a positive way to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then when death comes, that event comes, the outcome is heaven. But 
If we respond negatively to the gospel of Jesus Christ and we reject Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when the event occurs, when death comes, the outcome is going to be totally different. We're going to go to hell. I want you to understand, it is not the event that determines the outcome. It's the response to the event that determines the outcome. And people, this formula works for any event in your life. I want you to understand that. Now, as I told you earlier, this formula proves that God expects every one of us to take full responsibility for our actions. And let me explain why I said that. One of the worst events that could ever happen to a person is to, become, is to be sexually abused by someone in authority. Someone who's supposed to love us and protect us. People, when that takes place and you're sexually abused by someone who's supposed to love and protect you, it's a traumatic experience. In fact, it scars most people for life. Now, if I were God... I would give everyone who's ever been sexually abused a free pass to heaven because I can understand why they might be bitter towards life. I can understand why they might be angry towards God. I can understand why they might not accept Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior because of the event that took place in their life. So if I were God, I would give everyone who's ever been sexually abused a free pass to heaven. But God doesn't do that. Uh-uh. Regardless of the event or events that have happened in your life, God still expects you to respond the right way to the gospel of Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior. No exceptions. You see, no matter how many horrific events you've suffered in your life, it doesn't negate the fact that you have to take full responsibility for your sin, regardless of what other people have done to you, and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, which proves that God expects us to take full responsibility for our actions and for the way we respond to the events that happen in our life. You can blame everyone else for the way you're acting and the choices that you are making, but God does not buy it for one minute. In fact, God holds you 100% responsible for the way you act and the choices you make in your life, regardless of what other people do, no exceptions. And people, that's tough, because when people do bad things to us, when someone stabs us in the back, when someone cheats us out of money, when someone steals or robs from us, like, ha like what happened to me last night, I want you to understand, no matter what takes place, this event does not determine the outcome. What determines the outcome is the way I respond to that event, and the way I respond, God expects me to take 100% responsibility for the way I act the way I respond to those events. Now, why in the world would God be like that? Is it because God doesn't care? Is it because God is unfair? Is it because God is uncompassionate? On the contrary, it's because God does care. You see, God doesn't want you to have a crappy life. And he knows that as long as you are blaming others for your crappy life and you're not taking full responsibility for your own actions, you're going to continue to have a crappy life. Now, let me give you an example to illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's suppose that you stab me in the back. You do something that really betrays me. You do something that causes me a lot of harm. Maybe you assassinate my character. You do something that tears down my credibility in this community. And I get angry about it. And my anger turns into bitterness because I never resolve it. And remember, unresolved anger always turns into bitterness. Now, when I'm praying and God begins to convict me of being bitter and angry, 
I tell him, I know I shouldn't be angry, God, but they stabbed me in the back. Now, what I'm doing is I'm placing partial blame on the other person, on you for the way that I'm acting. Now, I want you to think of the ramifications of that. If you're partially to blame for the way I'm acting, it means I'm not entirely at fault. Right? Yeah. The reason I'm acting this way is because you stabbed me in the back. If you wouldn't have stabbed me in the back, I wouldn't have become angry. I wouldn't be bitter. It's your fault. So now... I've got an excuse for acting the way I am, and I've got an excuse for not changing. And people, that is detrimental to me. Yes, you did this horrible thing. Yes, this event occurred in my life. You tore down my credibility. You lied about me. But I want you to understand, the way I respond to that event determines the outcome. If I get angry and refuse to repent over that anger and bitterness, if I refuse to follow God's word and to pray for your blessing and to cast down these vain imaginations and to do good to those that harm me, I want you to understand the outcome is I become a very angry and bitter person. I become a person who never will trust again. And I'm angry at God because God allowed it. But if I respond in the right way, if I do what God has called me to do, even though this event occurred, I promise you the outcome is going to be totally different. You need to understand that it all goes back to this formula. According to this formula, the way I respond to being stabbed in the back is what determines the outcome. It's not the event itself. It's the way I respond to the event. Now, as long as I think I have an excuse for the way I'm responding, the way I'm acting, I won't see the need to change. Because I have a right to feel this way. I have a right to act this way. Because you did this to me. So that means I can keep acting the very same way. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You made me act this way. But that also means that I'm going to have a crappy life. So you know what God does? He makes us overcome our own human nature. When bad things happen to us, God begins to deal with us. He doesn't deal with this other person. He begins to deal with us. And he starts saying, you're not acting the right way. You need to repent. And we start arguing with God. Why would you ask me to repent? I did nothing wrong. They did this to me. And he says, but you're not acting right. Well, of course I'm not acting right. Look at what they did. It doesn't matter what they did. I still expect you to act right. Wow. But the reason God still expects me to act right is because he knows. It's not the event that determines the outcome. It's the way I respond to the event that determines the outcome. And he doesn't want me to have a crappy life. So he wants me to take full responsibility for the way I act, regardless of what anyone else does to me. Now, some of you are thinking, because I know the way you think. Well, I can't help it. When people treat me wrong, I can't help getting mad. I can't help retaliating. Yes, you can. Let me show you something interesting. The word responsible is a compound word. That means it's made up of more than one word. So let me show you the two words that it's made up of. Let's write the word responsible up here. 
Now, again, I said it's a compound word, and a compound word simply means it's made up of more than one word. In this case, response is made up of two words. It's made up of the word response and the word able. So we have response able, where we get the word responsible. Now, let me explain what responsible means. Responsible means that we're able to choose the right response. Did you catch that? Responsible means that you're able to choose the right response. Let me give an example. If you tell someone, well, I've got responsible kids. My kids are responsible. What you're saying is they're able to choose the right response. So if their friends come up to them and try to get them to smoke dope, your child is going to say what? No. If they are responsible and able to choose the right response when their, ki- when their friends try to get them to smoke dope, they're going to say no because that's the right response. And that's what responsible means. It means able to choose the right response. Now, here's what's interesting. We do not hold our kids responsible if they're not able to choose the right response. I'll give you an example. If you have a newborn baby, that newborn baby's going to crap in their pants. True? Yeah. Do you spank your newborn baby for doing that? No. But somewhere down the line, around two, three years old, if you're someone who really has a hard time with a four, but if they're going to kindergarten and they're still pooping in their pants, you get upset and you start spanking them. Why do you do that? Because they should be responsible. They should be able to, able to choose the right response. When they feel that urge, they should choose the right response, which is to go to the bathroom. Don't do it in your pants. So we don't hold our kids responsible if they're not able to choose the right response. But if they are able to choose the right response, we do hold them responsible. Now, God is the very same way. God does not hold us responsible if we're not able to choose the right response, and I'm going to prove that to you. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse number 9. For I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. Now, in this verse, Paul is using the word law symbolically. It symbolizes right and wrong. So what Paul is saying is this. In fact, put this up on the screens. I was spiritually alive once before I knew the difference between right and wrong. But once I knew the difference between right and wrong, sin revived and I died. That's what, that's what Paul was saying in this verse. Now, does everyone know what that means? It means that those who die before they have the mental capacity to know the difference between right and wrong get to go to heaven. So when a baby dies, that baby goes to heaven. When a small child dies, that child goes to heaven. When a mentally retarded or a mentally challenged person dies, they get to go to heaven. Why? Because they don't have the ability to choose the right response. So God does not hold them responsible for their sin. That's right. That's what Romans chapter 7 verse number 9 is saying. Let me read that again. For I was alive once. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived And I died. What Paul was saying, there was a time when I was born that I was spiritually alive. If I would have died in that condition, I would have gone to heaven. But when the commandment came, when I knew the difference between right and wrong, sin revived, I spiritually died. 
If I didn't receive Jesus at that time when I knew the difference between right and wrong, if I died in that condition, I would not go to heaven. So I want you to understand something. We do not hold our children responsible unless they're able to choose the right response, and God is the same way. So God is not going to hold you responsible unless he knows you have the ability to choose the right response. Now, once we know the difference between right and wrong, and we're able to choose the right response, God holds us responsible, and it does not matter what other people do to us. We know the difference between right and wrong. And God expects us to use or to choose the right response. He expects us to take full responsibility for our actions, no ifs, ands, or buts. And I'm going to use a little example that you've always used on your children. When your children run around with other kids and they do something they shouldn't do, and they come to you and they go, well, everyone else was doing it. And you look at them and you say, if your friends were jumping off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? And what do they normally do? They try it once. Well, if everyone else is doing it, I would. So what do you do? You pull off your belt and you just whop them good. If you don't do that, you need to. I'll teach on parenting sometime and you'll understand the need for spanking. But you're telling them, no, you're able to choose the right response. And I don't care what everyone else is doing. I don't care what they did to you. They called you chicken. They were throwing dirt clods at you, whatever. I don't care about that. You're able to do the, uh, choose the right response, and I expect you to do that. Do you understand me? And you'll, yes. And next time they're friends, get them to try to do something. They think about that. And they go, no, I'm not going to do that. I want you to understand, God treats us just like we treat our children because we are his children. He comes to us and he says, I don't care what they did. You're able to choose the right response. If everyone else is doing this, does that mean you're supposed to act that way? And you say, well, everyone else is. And God says, I don't care what everyone else is doing. You're a child of mine. You don't respond that way. You don't act that way. And God disciplines us. Why? Because God does not want us to have a crappy life. Why do you tell your children that? Because you understand if they're influenced by everyone, they're going to have a crappy life. And so God tells you, I don't care what takes place. You're able to choose the right response. You choose that right response, and you're going to have a good life no matter what people do to you. That's good teaching. People, there's not very many churches in America where you're going to learn that, but that is so true, and every new Christian should learn this. Now, we're teaching on how to overcome in a hostile work environment. So now we're going to relate this to work. Oh, crap, you're thinking. Whenever we goof up at work, what do we tend to do? What's it human nature to do? It's human nature to avoid taking full responsibilities for our goof-ups. And we start looking for others to place partial blame on. Well, it's not my fault entirely. And we start trying to ditch out the blame so that we won't, be in, so we won't take 100% responsibility for our actions. Let me just give you an example. Some of you are chronically late to work. Chronically late to work. Maybe not doesn't happen every day. But at least once a week, you're 5, 10, some of you even 15 minutes late to work. And some of you work at jobs where that's critical. Because if you work at a job like research, another person is supposed to get off at a specific time. But the reason they're supposed to get off at a specific time is because the person that's coming on, which is you, 
are going to take over the responsibilities. So when they clock out and you come in 10 to 15 minutes late, there's someone that's not being taken care of because you're not at work. But here's what's interesting. The boss comes to you and says, you're supposed to appear here at 8 o'clock. And what do you do? You don't take 100% responsibility for your actions. Well, my husband put the key. It doesn't matter what your husband did. I want you to understand something. It doesn't matter about the event. The truth of the matter is you were late. But you're going to give partial, or you're going to try and place partial blame on other people so you don't have to take full responsibility for your actions. You always have an excuse for being late. Let me tell you what your employer should do to you. He should fire you. Oh my gosh. You could hear not a pin drop, but keys drop. Every one of you that's chronically late to work should be fired. I don't care that you stayed out late last night. It doesn't matter if you couldn't find your keys. It doesn't matter if you let the cat out and the cat could, you couldn't find the cat and put him back in. You can't leave it outside. It's an indoor cat. It's not an outside cat. It doesn't matter. You have a responsibility to be at work at a certain time. Now, I'm going to give you a principle, and if you're taking notes, I want you to write this principle down. Are you ready? If you're offended, I can't help that. Respond in the right way so we get the right outcome. Write this down. People who don't take full responsibility for their actions create turmoil in the workplace. Let me say that again. People who don't take full responsibility for their actions create turmoil in the workplace. If there's turmoil in your workplace, if it's a hostile work environment, and you are always doing things wrong but won't take full responsibility for your actions, you're the one that's causing it. Let me explain how that happens. You have all these other people that can make it to work on time. But you don't make it to work on time, which means they have to cover for you. They have to do your job. Now, pretty soon, they get irritated at you. And then after that, they start getting irritated at the boss. Because the boss isn't doing anything about it. Can he see? The rest of us can get to work here on time. They can't get here to work on time. I don't care about their cat. I don't care where their husband put the keys. I don't care that they need to stop at the gas station. They should have done that the night before. But i got to cover for them, and you as the boss aren't doing anything about it. Now, pretty soon, we've got turmoil in the workplace. And let me tell you why it is. It's because that person is not taking full responsibility for their actions. They're late. It doesn't matter whose fault it is. I'm going to take full responsibility for this. I'm going to make sure that if I have to get up an hour earlier and make sure that the cat gets out and gets back in, and I have time to look for the keys, and I still have time to stop and get gas, I can be to work on time. Because if you're not, I guarantee you there's turmoil in the workplace. Oh, they might not be saying it to your face. But your co-workers are looking at you and thinking, Daggummit, now i got to stop what I'm doing. i got to go sack groceries because they're not here. Why doesn't Buddy fire them? I've had to fire people at Cornerstone Fellowship. I'm not proud of it. It's the worst thing a person can do. I've had to fire more than one people. One person, sorry. Singular. I hate doing it. But I want you to understand, when I fire people, they always go out and talk about what a mean man I am. What a horrible person I am to work for. And I don't get it. 
Because when you come to work for me, you get three weeks vacation right off the bat. You come to work in June, you have three weeks between June and December, 31st, 30, how many days, whatever's in December. Three weeks vacation. And where else you go? You have to work a year before you get a week. You come to Cornerstone Fellowship, we do things better in the world, you get three weeks vacation. I give you liberty and freedom. Because usually it's what I consider to be a management job unless you work for me hourly. You set your own time. Now, I do want you to have office hours. I want you to get in by 9. I want you to you know, stay, make sure people come in, get you, do what you're supposed to do. But here's what's interesting about that. I don't look at the clock. I don't look at the time. I don't see when people come. I expect them to get their job done. And one of the reasons that I expect them to get their job done is because I go over their job description. And to help them, we do what's called a ministry performance plan. Now, in the past, I've always done a quarterly ministry performance plan. This year, I've done a year, but I'm going to go back to a quarterly one. That means every three months, I sit down with my employees, and I will sit down with each one individually, and we'll talk about what they want to do in their ministry over the next three months. And then we'll say, okay, so let, let's decide what we want to accomplish. And so we'll write down what, it wants, what, the, what they need to do for the next three months, kind of the goals that are go above and beyond their job description. And we never put anything down that they don't feel like is realistic to do, that wouldn't be, or that might be too difficult. And I'll say, now, do you think you can get this done? And the person will look at me and say, oh, yeah, pastor, that's a snap. That's easy. I can do that. I can miss half, of the, uh, half the day's work and still get that done. Okay, let's sign it. So I'll sign it. They'll sign it. Those three months pass. We come back. They know exactly what they're going to be evaluated on. I had one employee that went five quarters and never met their objectives. The first quarter, they didn't meet their objectives. So when that happens, when we meet and we go over this and they don't meet this, I look at them and I say, okay, did we put too much on it? And then we'll discuss it. So for this person, we got made it a little bit easier the next time. That three months passed by, they still didn't meet it. We made it easier. We got down to the fifth quarter and I wrote down one thing. And I said, this is the one thing I want you to accomplish. Can you do this? And the person looked at me and said, I can do it in one day. I said, okay, but you got three months to do this one thing. Can you do this? I can do it. I can do it in one day. I said, good, sign right here. She signed, and I, signed. And I said, then I looked at her and I said, if you don't do this one thing, what should I do to you? And the person didn't say anything. I sat there and it got real quiet for about three minutes. She didn't say a thing. I didn't say a thing. I said, we're not going anywhere. What should I do if you don't get this one thing done? She looked at me and said, you should fire me. I said, okay. We went those three months and she didn't do it. I said, I'm not going to fire you. I'm going to put you on probation. And I'm going to treat you like a child. Each week, we'll put down this one objective. And we'll make sure that it's attainable, it's realistic, it's measurable. We'll make sure it's a smart go. Specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. Did real well. Did real well. 
until one week. And she didn't do what she was supposed to do. And then she lied about it. Judgment time came. I didn't know what else to do. Now let me tell you what created turmoil in the, in the work environment. Everyone else on staff was mad at me. And the reason they were mad at me is because when this person didn't do their job, everyone else had to do it for them. And now everyone's upset with me because they're having to work harder. This person's getting a free pass. It's been going on over a year and a half, and I'm still babying them. And we got turmoil in the workplace, and we're a church. So I do what I have to do, and I'm a bad person. No. The truth of the matter is, this person refused to take 100% responsibility for their actions. And when a person doesn't take 100% responsibility for their actions, they create turmoil in the workplace. I know when I started this series, you all thought I was going to really tell you how to, how to be able to stand the boss. How to be great under pressure. And what you found out is I'm talking about the employees. And I will talk about the employers. i got another week. I hope I'll get time to get to that. But the truth of the matter is America is losing its greatness because our employees don't know how to work. And because we no longer follow biblical principles that if a man pays us to do a day's work, we do the day's work and we don't make excuses for it when we don't. Some of you have had some traumatic experiences happen in your life. My heart breaks when you come talk to me. Over 40% of our women in this church have been sexually abused by people that supposedly love them and were supposed to protect them. Some of you have been physically abused. Some of you have had your own family betray you, stab you in the back. But I want you to understand something. Because God loves you, He tells you no matter what's happened to you, I still expect you to make the right response because God knows if you don't, this event's going to determine your life, which means you're going to have a crappy life. And he says, we can change that. If you'll act the way I tell you to act, no matter what's happened in your life, we can change the outcome. So if you've had a crappy life, let me tell you something. God can turn it around for you, but it starts by doing the right thing, which is receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You are not going to get a free pass to heaven. It doesn't matter if your parents were murdered, you were sexually abused, your kids were kidnapped. I want you to understand something. God still requires you to respond positively to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will seal your outcome to go to heaven. And then he'll start working on these other things. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, please... Take responsibility for your sin, regardless of what others have done. And say, Jesus, I want you to forgive me and come into my heart. And then he'll start dealing with the other things. To give you the type of life that you not only want, 
but deserve. So I'm going to ask everyone here to bow their heads, close their eyes. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus, I want you to respond to God's love. I want you to receive Jesus. And the way you're going to do that is you're going to say a prayer after me. I'm going to say the prayer. All you have to do is repeat it. You don't even have to say it out loud. Just say it silently to yourself. In this prayer, we're going to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and come into your heart and make you a new creature. So if you want to do that, just repeat this prayer after me. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sin has separated me from you. But God, I believe you love me. And I believe you sent your son Jesus to die for my sin. And I believe when all my sin was paid for, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord and Savior.